0: Welcome to Geographers Without Borders, brought to you by Women in GIS. This interview-style podcast brings you guests from around the world to share about their niche in geography. From GIS, to urban planning, to marine biology, scientists and professionals around the world use the science of geography to solve problems critical to humanity every day. Stick around for the end of the episode to find out more about getting involved in Women in GIS. And now your host, Shannon Fox-Day.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Geographers Without Borders, a podcast sponsored by Women in GIS. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Juliana McMillan-Wilhoyt, GIS professional and all-around GIS all-star. We'll be talking today about her work in the salary transparency space, what made her take action initially, and the types of responses that she's been getting. We'll also talk about advice that she would give to managers who want to encourage salary transparency and hiring practices. Join us for the episode starting now.
0: We'd like to thank our sponsors for their continued support. A special thanks to our platinum sponsors, the Wyoming Geographic Information Science Center at the University of Wyoming and Esri.
1: Juliana, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Geographers Without Borders. I
2: am so, so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, we're excited to have you. Uh, So I first came upon your profile on LinkedIn, uh, probably a few years ago, calling out a post that didn't have the salary included in the job posting. Um, When did that campaign start? And what made you first take action in the realm of salary transparency?
2: That is such a great question. So I initially started commenting on job posts Um, Just be like, hey, I think this might be a great post for somebody in my network. And I began to see that people were taking notice of that because I got some somewhat angry DMs from people saying, hey, stop commenting on job posts because that essentially is like diluting the pool of applicants and will make it harder for me to apply. Like I kid you not, like multiple people sent me that DM and I was like, oh, my people are like looking at my comments. And then uh, Todd Barr made a comment at one point on a post just saying like, hey, I won't be able to promote this post if you don't include a salary range. And that like was a comment. It wasn't on a comment, like a reply to me. It was just like on some random job post that I saw. That stopped me dead in my tracks. And I was like, oh my goodness, Todd is so right and salary transparency totally matters. And then I spiraled. And I started doing a bunch of research about why salary transparency matters. Um, and it then became a thing that I I got really passionate about. And so in, in a nutshell, salary transparency is particularly important for minorities. So whether that be women, people of color, or underrepresented genders, that having salary ranges that are published can help people help encourage people to apply for roles that they may think, Hey, like, you know, I I just don't want to apply, apply for this role either in terms of being able to see like, oh, this is a role that would actually pay, pay me more, or also just like helps women because we tend to under, underrate ourselves. And if there's a range, you know, that's 50 to $75,000, we'll oftentimes say like, Hey, maybe like $55,000 because we just tend to, to under, undervalue ourselves. And so after looking at the research, I realized that this is a super small step that, uh, organizations can do. I mean, it's not small, but it is. Um, And that, yeah, I guess that that, that's a little bit about how I got into this.
1: What has been the impact of your request to add salaries to job postings when you generally interact with people? What would you say your success rate has been?
2: Yeah. So I'd say in terms of like quantifiable success rate, um, there's a few ways that we can We can look at that. So the first is that this has impacted me as an employer. So I am the COO of Flourish and Thrive Labs, which we consider ourselves to be an employee first company. And one of our big things is salary transparency. So if you ever see a job posting that's coming from us, there will be salary transparency. And when I hired our our first person, um, uh, to, to do some work, it was incredibly scary for me to say, this is what I'm going to pay you. Um, it, it was for a sort of a particular thing. And so saying like, I'm going to pay you $15 an hour to do this thing as opposed to saying, Hey, you know, what, what do you think you want to, you know, what, what's a rate that you want to charge me. And so this whole movement has, has changed me fundamentally as an employer. And I think that that, right. That's really important. But secondly, so most of this is happening in comments on LinkedIn. And I would say I have not seen any salary postings, you know, get, you know, re-put up again where they end up actually posting with a salary. But what I have seen is people engaging in in the comment section saying, oh, well, like when I had this role, this was this this was the salary range. Or uh, oftentimes I will get people who DM me and say, this is the salary range, but I can't post that publicly. And also please don't post this publicly. And then I sort of get into a little back and forth. I'm like, well, I, I, I do not want to be a GIS analyst one, you know, in some random place, but it is in, an- That people do seem to recognize that posting these salary ranges are important, even if they are not taking the actions themselves. The other thing that I would say I have seen is that I will sometimes, you know, they'll come back and they say, you know, due to company policy, we won't just disclose a salary range. And I sort of have a have a canned response for that about like, I doubt that a comment from like a random person is going to change anything about this, but I then tag the employer and I just list some reasons why salary ranges totally matter. And my hope is that I'm at least starting a conversation and that they at least know that to a person on the internet, salary ranges matter.
1: It seems crazy to me that they would not want to share it. Have you seen, I think, California recently changed their legislation so that they have to post salaries in their job postings?
2: Yeah, so that's a a wonderful, wonderful move that is happening across the country. So I believe that it started in Colorado and now New York City, and now I believe it's going to be in, in California as well. The downside to that is recently a large tech company in compliance, we could say malicious compliance with that law posted a salary range, and the salary range was ninety thousand to nine hundred thousand dollars.
1: I think I saw that post too I, except or I saw something similar that was 50, yeah fifty thousand dollars to like nine hundred ninety nine or something right, and so that's where
2: there's no way that that's really the the full range and they're they're taking advantage and and that's unfortunate and i guess you know that's just what people are going to do but it has been really interesting to see that internally within organizations some people do see the value but they really feel like they are hamstrung and that's because within organizations Typically, we hold this information so close. I started my career really in the federal government. And in, when you're a federal employee, it's like you're a GS-12 and anyone can go up and look and see sort of what the range is for that. So, I mean, you know, not that I would like go broadcast my salary to my friends, but if they were really curious, they could figure it out. And I knew exactly what my colleagues were making. So to me, this has just sort of always, I guess, been part of an ethos. And I never thought about um, sort of any other way, but in this you know, stage of capitalism, you know, we want to, you know, extract as much as we can out of employees, it seems.
1: Which is rough. And it's that makes it tough for people to go from the government side or even government contracting into private sector. Because you're totally right. You can see if you go from public municipalities and cities and counties, they also generally have to keep their salaries published. And you might not be able to see who exactly is making what, Uh, But I can imagine going from a public sector to into private just is so confusing for people that encouraging salary transparency is just, we need to really support this movement, I think.
2: Absolutely. When I made the jump from public to private, I got a substantial pay increase. However, what I didn't realize was that I was still being vastly underpaid for what I was why I was hired and for the skill sets that I had, and in comparison to my peers. So when I found out that somebody who didn't have a master's degree, didn't have the years of work experience, et cetera, et cetera, but was hired at the exact same time as me, also a woman, but was being paid, I think, $15,000 more than me, I was livid. Um, just because I didn't know what to ask for, and I asked for what I thought was this you know astronomical number because I was used to my government salary and then realizing that that astronomical number was still so much less than what my peers were were making.
1: That sounds so familiar to me. I think nearly the exact same thing happened to me when I switched from working in a city to government contracting and you know being in the private sector, and I've seen that happen with lots of people it's just wild. I did work at a place where they had full tr- nearly full transparency on salary and actually released everyone's salaries yearly and everyone in the company could see what everyone else was making and at first it was kind of shocking but then it almost was like an incentive to work harder or to learn hey what does that person have or what are they doing that I don't have that's making them quote worth so much more than me and how can I get to that place?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that honesty and transparency and that sort of thing, like it's going to be rough. There's going to be uncom- like discomfort, but there's also discomfort because you assume that somebody makes so much more money than you, or you assume that they make so much less than you. And Brene Brown it says clarity is kind, unclarity is unkind. Yes. And while she's talking about sort of in crucial conversations, I do think that it's still really applicable in, in this case of just... What's the worst that can happen? Oh, okay. Companies maybe have to pay more, but I do think you will also have a far more engaged workforce, which is something that's that's really important. That is, it, our business model at FNT Labs, we are committed to ensuring that we are a really good place for our employees to work because we believe that then they will end up doing better work, and part of that is making sure that you know, we care for our people um, in, in all sorts of different ways. But I think most employers are just trying to extract as much as they can out of, um, out of the people who work
1: for them. Agreed. And lacking that transparency just holds people back in so many ways. I think having it puts almost an additional level of faith and trust in your employer when, when you can see that. And when you feel like they're being open with you about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in another role and other things that you do among the myriad of activities that you're out here, uh, you do mentoring to people and you help early career GIS professionals. When you're mentoring them, how do you advise early career GIS professionals to negotiate their salaries when they're in the room, when they're in that interview process?
2: Yeah. So there's a, a few strategies and the best strategy is that you don't give a number. So on, on so many job applications, it says, what is your ideal you know, salary? And so we're just going to assume that you're just being asked to pick a number out of the hat. And a strategy that I learned is uh, that you say something like, uh, as my future employer, I am going to trust you that um I, I i have to put a lot of trust in you, and I am trusting that you will put a salary on the table that you think is commensurate with my experience so that's one one thing is to try and get them to blink first or whatever the phrase is, so they give you a salary first um The other thing is to go in and have a sense of what appropriate ranges are for a role or for or for an organization. So I always think that networking is a super important part of your job search process, just so that you can have ins, It makes it a lot easier for you to get a role. And so uh, if you have actually had a conversation with someone and they may be able to give you some level of intel on the organization. So for example, when I started at Esri in in tech support, I made $52,000 a year. I'm pretty open about that because that, well, that was a decade ago. I feel like that's helpful information that, you know, somebody could could help somebody along the way. But you're talking to somebody, they may be able to tell you what they currently make, or you could say, I'm thinking about asking for something within this range. Does that seem commensurate with what you make or what you think other people make? Uh, Those are, I guess, a a few of the things that I do um, that I I encourage people to do. The third thing is that I encourage young GIS professionals to um, also just know what the market is and to know what you could be paid elsewhere based off of looking at both job postings as well as looking at sites like Glassdoor. Unfortunately, I think that... GIS professionals, however you want to define that, can be underpaid in comparison with IT and other professionals. So you just have to keep that in mind. And that's like the blessing and the curse of this
1: profession. I've definitely heard people say, oh, if you take the GIS off of your resume and essentially market yourself as an IT professional who also has GIS skills, you will be more successful, which...
2: 100%. No, like if you if if you market yourself as like a broad broad data analyst in most cases you'll make significantly more than if you are just a GIS analyst and in part we could say that like that the roles and what you would be doing are different but it also just sort of comes down to to title and a lot of the ways that like salaries are determined are by looking like uh, across the board and like what are we paying in this for this thing in this area and GIS people seem to really like what they're doing, like what they do. And so we've just, I think we have deflated
1: our salaries. I wonder why, do you think that they have always been deflated and that they've just stayed in that kind of depressed space? Or do you think that there's an actual kind of reason to it?
2: I don't know. I think part of it is what is a GIS analyst? What is a GIS person? So if you're a GIS technician, so someone who's, say, digitizing roads, snapping features, that is a super, super important part of our industry. That requires a very different skill set than someone who's a GIS analyst So someone who is either programming or, like, using programmatic thought to teach effectively convey information. And I think that we tend to equate some of the higher level data visualization and analysis skills with that of a
1: technician. I think that is definitely one of the reasons. And I think now that you say technician versus specialist versus analyst, I sometimes wonder if those are thrown around interchangeably sometimes because people who are developing these job recs aren't necessarily in the technical space. And so they think, "eh, specialist, analyst, whatever. And it's not really the case when it comes to skill level.
2: I think you're absolutely right that understanding what is a, the difference between a technician or an analyst or a specialist, it really depends on different organizations. But I think people have developed job specifications that are maybe based off of the requirement of a very, very different skill set or they're pulling, oh, okay, like we need somebody who can do X, Y, and Z, but we see that somebody who has a very similar job, but they're a technician, they make $45,000 a year. So that seems like an appropriate salary for this. And I just think it's a a repeating cycle that has really hurt our industry. And then it makes it a lot harder to then climb out of that um, because understanding what a good paying job is it becomes a lot harder.
1: That's true. That's such a great point. And even further, I think legacy-wise has also hurt the industry as a whole when it comes to that.
2: I was interviewing at one point with a, I'm based in Chicago and there's a, a an organization here that runs the GIS for most local governments. And I was coming in with five or six years of experience ha- having run teams, done a bunch of stuff. And they had said that, you know, the salary, that the, the most salary that we can give you is 65000 um a year for this. And I realized, and they were thinking that that was super generous. That was way less than what I was, or it, it was less than what I was making in my federal government role. But when I began to look at comps, that I realized that in part, they were one of the big players in the area. And so they, you know, were really impacting the GIS jobs, um, you know, in terms of salary. If, you know, if people were comparing salaries, then, you know, 65, if they're paying 65,000, then, you know, other places aren't going to do that. Additionally, I think that we oftentimes don't think about benefits Benefits play a huge, huge role also in in what your take-home pay ends up being. So a local government job, which tends to have a lower salary, um, you may end up having far richer benefits. So I have a baby right now, thanks to the fact that my husband had a very rich health insurance plan that afforded us to do IVF, whereas we, there's no way I would have paid to do IVF out of pocket you know, the the pension and et cetera that he get he, that he got. So I do think that it is important to think about some of those ancillary benefits, which just, you know, is further complicating and muddling this idea of of salary. But um, it's not like comparing the the job, the pay rate for a local government job and a private sector job, you can't really compare those two because of the richness of benefits that you get in the public sector.
1: That is also such a great point. And congratulations on the little one. Thank you for sharing part of your journey. That's such a good point. And someone told me that long, 20 years ago, when I was coming into the workforce to make sure whenever I interviewed, ask them about the benefits, because you're absolutely right, you might be willing to take a dollar less an hour, um, if your leave is unlimited, or If they have paternity leave in addition to maternity leave and and things like that. And many times people don't ask those things or they feel uncomfortable or and jobs can also make that difficult. I have found on the hiring side where I have seen people post, why are they asking about this in in the interview? Why are they asking about benefits so early? That's an integral part of your job. It's not work-life balance anymore. It's work-life integration. And mm-hmm. how, do, how do these things work together? And you want someone who can function in, in both. <laughs> and you should be proud of the benefits that you offer as a company as well, I think.
2: Absolutely. And so there's ways that I feel a little bad because I think I'm focusing so much on salary when in my advocacy because that's a really easy thing to pin on, right? Like at least in the US, like most job postings say we offer health, vision, dental, you know, in and, and a 401k, but that doesn't actually mean much, right? Because are you covering all of my health or am I having to pay a ton of money for a really bad plan? And so It is so important that you begin to ask the questions. If you go to therapy, which I think most people should go to therapy, understand is therapy covered uh, on their health insurance? How much are you going to have to pay for that? Um, If you take medications, how much is your medication going to cost? Because if you're weighing two different jobs, like actually looking at those things could end up really impacting the amount of money that you have in your pocket at the end of the day.
1: Yes. People should never be afraid to ask for a benefits package breakdown and i think a company who doesn't want to provide that i think that's a red flag personally
2: oh a hundred percent and keep asking for it so just um if you if people were to go to my website I, i've written a blog post on this in terms of things to ask but just like asking what's called the medical formulary in the u.s which is like that these are the medications that are covered and how much they're going to be Yeah, getting additional information on what is covered under the health insurance, asking questions about flexible work, asking questions about what their educational benefit is, what the payback is for the educational benefit. All of that stuff is what creates the totality of your work experience. And salary is a really, really, really important part of that. But it is not the only part of it.
1: So on the other side, what kind of advice would you give a hiring manager who? maybe wants to change the culture in their own company and say, hey, we need to be more transparent about salary in our hiring processes.
2: A scary thing, but a thing that they can do is refuse to advertise the job unless it includes a salary range. And when I worked in corporate, there was a decent amount of pressure on me to post post jobs. And I was very clear every time that I would love to post this job because I thought it was a really good fit for some people, but I would refu- But I refused to, to, to do that because we did not list a salary range. So I think at the base level, people can begin to put their foot down. Now, I recognize that that may mean that it's harder to get a job filled. And, you know, as a hiring manager in particular, you have Um, people on your, you want to build out your team. So it's also appropriate, depending on your company culture, for you to say, um, there's no salary range that's listed in this, but, you know, we would expect to bring somebody on at X salary. Um, Whatever context that you can provide to help people is so, 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 so important. Saying competitive salary means absolutely nothing to me. I'm sorry.
1: I agree. They can say competitive salary and I always think competitive to who on the flip side in the, in the GIS realm kind of itself, would you say that GIS is a career or is it a tool? Yeah. I thought this was such
2: a, such a, such a fun question. And I think that GIS is a tool that one can build a career around. So over the course of the past few years, I have really been moving from calling myself a geo a GIS professional to a geospatial professional. And in part, that's I host a thing on Twitter every week, and we call ourselves Ge- geospatial connections. And I realized somebody else pushed for that name that was th- about how to think geographically and in a geospatial manner, and GIS is. A tool that we use, but the GIS is so synonymous with ArcGIS, QGIS, like a GIS software, whereas there's plenty of other ways that you can do and apply geospatial thinking. So I think GIS is a tool that one uses in their career.
1: I have seen it debated here and there, and I would agree with that sentiment that it's a tool you can build your career around. I think that's a terrific way to put it to lean on that, what is your favorite tool? All
2: right. So I am all about like automating your life. And I think that if you automate your life, you're able to create more space for the things that matter to you. So I have a few tools that I love for just automating my life. The first of all is Instacart. Um, I don't even know if this is how you want me to answer the question, but Instacart allows groceries to come to my house. Or I go pick them up, and that saves me a lot of time. That gives me the space for the things that matter to me, like doing career coaching, like being active on the internet, and being a and like a commenting on people's posts. Um, the other, uh, another one is Zapier, which is a tool like a low code tool that allows me to like automate things. Like if I do this thing, or like if this thing happens, then have this other thing happen. So like. If I get, I mean, like one that we had set up at one point in time was if the LSU Tigers score a game, a point in football, then our lights turn purple um, We're LSU Tigers fans. And, but you can do it for, for all sorts of things. Like if I update something on JIRA, then it adds it to my calendar. That again, saves me so much time. And it's just about like automating my life. And finally, otter.ai, which is by far one of my most favorite tools. Um, I have moderately severe dyslexia. I didn't read until the fourth grade. And I communicate best in spoken, like speaking versus writing. And writing is something that just takes me a really long time. AI is a voice transcription tool that enables me to speak and then it transcribes for me. And so I will oftentimes send people a voice memo where they can either listen to me speaking a response or they can read the response to so whichever one they want. And that for me is a tool that is really inclusive for me. Um, it, I think it's, it's something that um, people could read my response if they don't. Like listening to things, but it's a way that enables me to reduce a barrier towards communication um, and really has helped me
1: flourish in the workforce. That is super cool. I've never heard of that. And what a good idea. And I like how it increases inclusivity for people. You know, some people, it can be difficult for them to read things on screens or this or that. And it just is easier for them to absorb the information or consume it audibly instead of reading it
2: yeah it's a it's a free they have a really robust free plan it's a tool that really I would say has changed my life because it really reduces a barrier to me in terms of sending an email or communicating with somebody because I also have ADHD and I do not always communicate tone the best written in written form so it can sound like I absolutely disdain somebody if I write it but you could obviously hear in my tone that I am very happy and just like trying to explain something
1: Absolutely. Tone and text is still a thing. You think we would have gotten by that by now. It's 2023.
2: Probably, you know, as we use more AI tools like Otter, you know, and
1: chat bot, chat GPT,
2: et cetera. I think that it will continue to be a lost art.
1: I I agree with that, too. Uh, so what do you think is the next big thing in GIS?
2: Yeah. So I really think that AI is going to continue to be a disruptor. And I think that, you know, we need to, you know, put focus on that and there's plenty of people who really will. The thing is that I, I think the next big thing in GIS is going to be the people who are able to apply geospatial strategy to solve problems. And so as we collect more data, as we have more Internet of Things, all all the things that we, that we talk about, what we really are with the next hurdle and challenge is how do we make that information accessible? How do we make it meaningful? How do we protect people's privacy? How do we use this data creatively? How can we solve world problems? And so I think that the next
1: big thing in GIS is really going to be a push towards strategy. I think given how GIS has popped up and been developed all over the country and cities and everywhere. I don't know that there has been a general strategy in many instances where we've implemented GIS. Sometimes you show up and they've just been, been making maps forever and they don't really have it, a goal.
2: Exactly. Right. It's that we, we make maps, we do these things and we don't I know just, I. It, it, yeah or or maybe we, we sort of know why but we aren't thinking more creatively. Yeah. And so that's you know one one of the big drivers within our business at FNT Labs is really to to help push push things strategically forward to to help organizations ask the questions, figure out how to staff, how to leverage data in really creative ways. And I think that as a profession we are going to be in deep trouble if we are just picking up new tools like geospatial AI, like geodesign, like whatever new tool, white box tools, whatever, without thinking more holistically about how can how can I really strategically use this to, to further um, to further the work that I'm doing?
1: What would be a piece of advice you would give to someone interested in pursuing a geospatial profession?
2: That's the best profession out there and that I'm so thankful that I fell in to, to, to this world. That, that there's a way that there's a community element to working in GIS that I didn't expect and I think is really unique to, to being um, in the world of geospatial. That said, getting a job can be really difficult and getting a well-paying job can be difficult. And so the way that you can differentiate yourself in the market is by having a portfolio, uh, which can both help you in networking, but is also really crucial to help you stand out from other candidates. I agree. Yeah. I mean, one of of the big things I do in coaching is working with people on a portfolio and so you can use any number of platforms story maps github website pdf a powerpoint it doesn't matter what the platform is but what matters is creating a cohesive story about who you are and what you bring to the table and just as an aside as we're talking about you know the mo- money I do want to make it clear that like the paycheck that you get at the end of the day is not the same thing as your value as a person. And I think that we can oftentimes conflate the two and it's just like at the end of the day, your salary is just money and does has nothing to do with like your value as like a person um, who has infinite worth.
1: I appreciate that comment so much. And last question, if you could explore any place on Earth, where would you pick? I love this question. So
2: I think I would just love to do more exploring in the American Southwest. I have traveled a ton, but have really not done any of that, gotten there. So I I really hate caves, like deeply, deeply, deeply hate caves. A cave is halfway point between me and my sister in Alabama, and I just hate that area because i'm afraid i'm gonna fall into a cave but i sort of you know would like to go to the grand canyon because i consider that to be like a reverse cave it's like a safe cave because you know there's no top on it so you know the american southwest the grand canyon
1: nice that's awesome
2: (laughs) i know probably some geologists are gonna come at me of the wonders cave i recognize the caves are probably really great they just scare me and i'm not scared of a lot but i'm scared of caves
1: i can identify with that well, thank you so much, Juliana, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your input and your thoughts and your continuing fight for salary transparency.
2: Thank you so much. It was such a joy to, to, to get to be with you today, Shannon.
0: Women in GIS, or WeGIS is an international professional and social advocacy group for those whom identify as women and their allies. The aim of WeGIS is to serve as a safe place in the geospatial industry to work towards overcoming common barriers for those whom identify as women might face. We foster relationships and resource sharing among members and institutions. WeGIS is a consortium of advocates from academia, government, and private industry designed to advance the presence of women in GIS. Want to learn more about getting involved in women in GIS? Visit our website at womeningis.org or you can email us at admin at The links are below in the show notes.